So if you have a Bible now, we're going to read together our passage in the book of Genesis. So you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. In a moment, I'll read our verses for us. We're going to be kind of reading the middle part of the chapter. We're going to read verses 12 through 28. And before we do that, let, let me just say a couple things. And the first is that throughout this whole Genesis series, in a sense, each week we're kind of jumping into the middle of a story because we're getting high points in Genesis. So if as I read this, you're thinking, I- I'm not sure exactly how we got here, that's all right. Like in, in the message time, I'll, I'll get us there. I'll, I'll help get us up to speed. Even if you haven't been here for the previous weeks, hopefully you'll get up to speed with this passage. Um, and so I'm going to read it for us, Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks. Thank you that you're a God who loves. Thank you that we've, we've got to celebrate that you not only have adopted us into your family through Jesus, but you've also sent us. And we thank you for the the joy of getting to pray with brothers and sisters who are heading out on the go teams. Father, I pray that you give all of us that mentality that we are created for so much more than simply to exist. We are created to be a part of you putting your kingdom and your glory on display. Lead us through this time and open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So in this passage... 
amongst other parts of the story, really the main part of the story, the core of the story, is that we see an act of evil. An act of evil by Joseph's brothers, where intending to kill him at first, they end up throwing him into a cistern and then selling him off into slavery. And so the question I want to pose as we get ready to walk through and examine the story is how do acts of evil relate to God's plans for us? And and on the beginning, it's important just to define this a little bit. When I talk about acts of evil, um, I think it's better to talk about acts of evil than just evil people because we know we're all a mixed bag. We all do things that are good. We all do things that are wrong. And so here's what I mean by acts of evil, because it could be easy for us to say, well, acts of evil are things done by genocidal dictators. Fair enough, but there's a broader definition. So here's how I'm defining acts of evil. Any intentional act that is done selfishly with a desire to hurt or with a disregard of the hurt it will cause. And here's my point in giving this definition at the beginning. It can be easy for us to see evil as something that's out there far from us. But the real question is, are we not as evil as other people? Or have we just not been in a position to have our evil impact others in the way others have? The difference between the act of evil that a genocidal dictator takes and the act of evil that one of us takes when we slander someone else The difference is a difference in degree. It's not a difference in kind. And you might think, well, but but when I say that thing, I'm not trying to hurt them. Yeah, and when the genocidal dictator commits genocide, his ultimate goal is not to murder. His ultimate goal is to have power. There's just some people in the way. We commit acts of evil when there's something that we want and we just disregard. Sometimes our goal doesn't even have to be to hurt somebody, but if they get hurt along the way as collateral damage, we're okay with that. An act of evil is any intentional act that's done selfishly with a desire to hurt or with a disregard of the hurt it will cause. And so not only could all of us hear that and say, I I get a little nervous because that means that I've done acts of evil, We can also look at our lives and say, clearly, we have had acts of evil done to us. There's different degrees. There's different impact that they've had, but we all have had acts of evil committed against us. And so sometimes it's abandonment from a spouse or from a parent. Sometimes it's some kind of abuse. And and sadly, some of you have been abused physically or sexually in different ways. Sometimes it's bullying, which could go as far back as to elementary school, or it could be something that happens in the workplace today. Maybe there's real acts of violence that you suffered. Maybe it's been slander. Maybe it's been a rumor. Maybe there's been a boss that's fired you because another coworker started a rumor about you. We all have had acts of evil committed against us. And the hard thing when this happens is that if we look at God and we say, all right, God has good plans and God is working all things for my good, it seems like those acts of evil could thwart God's plans. How is it that me going through this is not ruining God's good purposes for me? And just to go further, there are probably some of you in here this morning that you are currently in the heat of this. You've had something happen to you. You have been wronged in some way, and it's hard for you not to believe that your life has now been hijacked. It's hard for you not to believe that it's all over and that your life will never be what it was meant to be 
because of how this person has wronged you. And what we get in Genesis 37 is we get the story about Joseph's life and it appears that it was hijacked. He went from being his dad's favorite son in a peaceful setting to becoming a slave in a foreign land. How in the world is this not God's good plan for his life being hijacked? But as we walk through this story in Genesis 37, we get an answer to this question, how do acts of evil relate to God's plans for us? But let's take our time and get there and let's start actually with the act of evil. I want to start in the middle of this passage where the brothers show their intention to do something evil against Joseph. In verses 19 and 20, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And that last phrase, some of you know the story of Joseph, so you know where this is going. Some of you may not, and you're thinking, what are they talking about? Then let's see what will come of his dreams. Well, we got to go back to the beginning of chapter 37. Um, and even before this, let me just kind of set the table. We, we spent three weeks talking about Jacob, and Jacob is Joseph's father. Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph is the 11 of those sons. These sons were born to four different women. This is a messed up family. As we're just taking a minute here, so the four different women, Jacob has two wives, Leah and Rachel, and then each of those wives has a servant. And at different times, because there was rivalry and there was sort of backbiting about who was going to be the most loved wife, because who was going to have the most children, each of Jacob's wives gave him their servant and said, have more children through her and I'll claim them as my own. Now, I just want to pause here and say this. As you're reading through the Old Testament, the New Testament too, but especially the Old Testament, you might be thinking, there's some messed up stuff that's happening here. Like this is in the Bible. There's concubines and there's adultery and there's all this. Why is this stuff in here? And it's important just for us to realize that a lot of the actions taken in the Bible are not actions that God is approving of. And one of the reasons why I love the Bible so much is because through it, God doesn't present to us a peachy view of the world. He presents to us the world as it is, which means even some people that on the whole seem to be following God make horrific decisions. And some of those horrific decisions lead to some of the situations we find ourselves in here. So Joseph is the 11th son, um, and he's the son, that, the firstborn son to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. And so he ends up being the favored son. So there's a point at the beginning of chapter 37, and I'll just sum it up. But if you have an open Bible, you can look down as I sum it up. At the beginning of chapter 37, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers as they're tending the flocks. And Joseph comes back with a bad report. Basically says they're misbehaving. They're not doing it right. He tattles on them. So strike one with his brothers. You don't tattle on your brothers and not get blowback. So the brothers are already upset with him because he tattled on him. Then after that, Jacob decides not to hide at all that he has a favorite son. So he gives Joseph an ornate robe, this beautiful robe to set him apart as the favored son. And in a way, it's almost comical because today, if anyone accused us of having a favorite kid, we would deny it to our grave. We say, there's no way. I love all my kids equally. There's no way. Jacob just isn't even hiding it. 
You think he would have learned from the fact that with his parents, Isaac had his favorite son, Esau, and Rebecca had her favorite son, Jacob. But he doesn't learn anything from it. He just says, here's Joseph, my favorite, and here's his robe. Strike two. You tattle on your brothers, and then you're the obvious dad's favorite. Strike three happens with the dreams. And it's funny even with dreams because we don't tend to make a lot of our dreams. And I think that's usually good. We don't make a lot of our dreams. Dreams come for a variety of reasons. But in Genesis, dreams are one of the key ways that God is communicating with his people. He does this with Abraham. He does this with Jacob. And now he does it with Joseph. And Joseph actually has two dreams. And in both of these dreams, there's symbolism that points towards the idea that at some point, Joseph will be exalted and his 11 brothers will bow down to him. Now, maybe naively, Joseph shares this with his brothers. It's like, what do you guys think about this? And you're just like, oh my goodness, strike three. There it is. And there are two dreams, so strike four. He does it twice. He is hated by his brothers. He tattled on them, and then dad gave him the favored cloak, and then he had these dreams, and they just think, we're done with this guy. That's the setting for all of this that leads to this moment where they say, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. But there's a series of events that lead to the point that the brothers make this decision. And so now with the passage that we actually read, if you go back to verse 12, the way that this begins is that Jacob, who's called Israel here, it goes back and forth because God renamed him Israel. Jacob says, all right, Joseph, I'm going to send you out to check on your brothers, which in a way shows he was not in tune with the family dynamics. Last time he did this, Joseph brought back a bad report. It caused all kinds of chaos. He does it again. He says, all right, your brothers are out tending the flocks at Shechem. I'm going to send you to them. You're going to check up on them and find out what's going on. So Joseph goes to check up on them, and when he goes to Shechem to find them, he doesn't find them. It says he wandered around, and it's even possible that this was not just a couple minutes he was wandering around. This could have been a few days. He's looking around and just trying to figure out where his brothers are. And as he's wandering around in Shechem, he meets a man who is unnamed here, and the man helps him out. He not only says, okay, I know who you're talking about. I know who your brothers are. He says, I overheard them say that they're going to go to Dothan. So Joseph heads off from Shechem to Dothan. And when he goes to Dothan, we get to the point that we already focused on a little bit before. His brothers see him in the distance. And before he even gets here, they say, now's our chance. We're going to get that dreamer. We're going to kill him. So this is plan number one. Plan number one is we're going to kill him and throw him in a cistern. And then you have an abridgment to this plan because in verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 21, Reuben, the oldest of the brothers, steps in. And maybe being the oldest brother, he thinks, all right, I, I got to do something here. So Reuben gets them on from plan one to plan two. And plan two is, let's not kill him, let's just throw him in the cistern. And this is Reuben trying to save Joseph. He's buying time. And it says that he was trying to deliver him and get him back home to dad. And so the idea from Reuben appears to be that he thinks, all right, we'll throw him in the cistern. I'll tell the brothers we're leaving him there for dead. We'll all move on and then I'll sneak away from the brothers. I'll come back. I'll get Joseph. I'll get him out of the cistern and I'll I'll get him back home to dad. And maybe even thinking I'll be a big hero for dad by getting this done. So so Reuben buys time. So plan one is we're going to kill him. Plan two is we're going to throw him in a cistern. And they do throw him in the cistern. And it says it's empty. There was no water in it, which is good and bad. It's good that there was no water because that meant that Joseph wouldn't drown in there. Cisterns were sometimes as deep as 20 feet. So this is why Joseph can't just get out of this place. 
So it's a deep cistern. There's no water in it. So it's good that he's not going to drown. But why is it bad? He's going to get thirsty. Doesn't have any water in there. This is a bad situation. If there was a little water, he at least could kind of quench his thirst. Then we'll move on to verse 25. And it says, as they sat down to their meal. And just pause. Did you catch this when we read it? Where's Joseph? Joseph is in a cistern. You know what Joseph is probably doing in that cistern? He's probably not being quiet. He's probably calling out, brothers, please, we're the same flesh and blood. Please let me out of here. Please, I'll do anything. Let me out. And while he's doing that, they're sitting down to eat. They sit down to eat their meal. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Now, just a quick note on this, because you may have noticed as I was reading, the, the author goes back and forth between calling them Ishmaelites and calling them Midianites. You might think, what, what's going on? Is, is he confused? Is he changing his mind? Is this a different story? And what's going on is these are two different ways to describe the same group of people. The same thing happens in Judge chapter 8, where there's a group of people and both titles work. It's almost as if one title is about the region that they were from, and one title is about the ethnicity they were. So it goes back and forth because they're both different ways to refer to the same group. Verse 26, we get plan number three. So plan number one is kill him. Plan number two is put him in the cistern and we'll wait. Plan number three is from Judah. And Judah says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Now, by the way, Judah isn't like Reuben here. Reuben is trying to get Joseph safely back home. Judah is basically like, let's make some cash off this thing. And what are we going to gain if we just leave him here? But come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our flesh and blood. Don't you love that? You're like, oh, just throwing that in there. Hey guys, he's our own flesh and blood. We can't do this. He's our own brother. He came from the same place that we did. So you know what? Let's just sell him into slavery. Let's not be mean about this thing. His brothers agreed and they execute plan number three in verse 28. It says, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver, which was the average price for a male slave during this time. 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Joseph makes the move in this story from going to being dad's favorite son in Israel to being a slave in a foreign land. This is quite a transition he goes through. And again, when he asks the question, how did he get here? You realize there are a lot of things that had to line up kind of perfectly for Joseph to go through this transition in this story. There's a lot of things that had to break just exactly right, or from Joseph's perspective, exactly wrong for him to end up having this happen to him. When my middle son, Jack, was two years old, he got hit in the head by an aluminum baseball bat. This sounds bad. And it was bad. Now, thankfully, he was fine. He got a bump on his head. Um, he, he was okay. But it was a very scary moment. And it, the way that it happened was our oldest son, Matt, was playing a, a Little League baseball game. And we were all there. And Jack was running around just having fun. And uh, we all saw something happen that it was almost as if it was in slow motion, but we just couldn't get there to stop it. And what happened was there was a little girl on Matt's team that decided she was going to take some practice swings outside of the dugout, which you really weren't supposed to do, but you know, she, she just went out to do it. 
And so there was this little girl standing over there taking these practice wings. There's Jack here running around playing. And then everything just lined up exactly perfect for him to get hit in the head. In the aftermath, there were so many things that we just thought if that just went a little bit differently, this wouldn't have happened. And so he's running over to the area right as she's taking the swing, and she doesn't even hit him with the swing. She swings and doesn't hit him, but then she brings the bat all the way around, and the follow-through nails him right in the head. I ran over and grabbed him, and he was screaming, and again, he got a bump on his head. He was fine. He was okay. Thank God it was all okay. But in the aftermath, we were looking at him just saying, there were so many, everything had to go perfect for him to get hit by that bat. Joseph could look at this situation and say, man, everything had to go exactly perfect for this to end up being the case. I mean, if you go back to the beginning, the first thing that had to line up is Jacob had to be unaware enough of the family dynamics to say, go ahead and check on your brothers. And then a second thing that had to line up is a curious part of the story that you may have even wondered why it's in there. Jacob goes to Shechem, and when he's in Shechem, he can't find his brothers, and he runs into a man. You might think, why is this even in the Bible? Why didn't they just say eventually he got to Dothan? Why do we need to know about this interchange? Well, he runs into an unnamed man who happens to be able to identify his brothers and also happens to have overheard where they went. Think about that. And think about this also. If Joseph would have just wandered around in Shechem and not run into this man, you know what he would have done? Would have gone back home. Said, Dad, I looked, I couldn't find him. On the other hand, if Joseph had known from the beginning that they were in Dothan, he would have gone right to them. And maybe they would have still thrown him into a cistern, but you know what kind of timing wouldn't have lined up? The Ishmaelite merchants. Everything had to go just right for this to happen, including Reuben stepping in and saving him, including Judah coming up with the idea when he saw all this happen. Everything had to go exactly right for Joseph to go from being dad's favorite in Israel to being a slave in Egypt. It's almost, it's almost as if this thing was planned. If you didn't know better, you'd almost think there was some divine order to this whole thing. You'd almost go back to the idea that Joseph had a dream about being exalted, and the only way for that dream to come to fruition would be for him to somehow get to Egypt. And God got him to Egypt by having all these events break just exactly right. And just go back again to this statement, this focal statement at the end of verse 20, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. The brothers probably here are saying more than they realize they're saying. And when they're saying this, it's almost as if what they're saying is, Joseph thinks he's going to be exalted. Joseph has a plan that he's going to have this great exaltation and we're all going to bow down to him. Well, let's see how likely that's to happen after we throw him in a pit and sell him off to slavery. But what the brothers don't seem to be taking into account is that Joseph's plan was never to be exalted. It wasn't Joseph's plan at all. You know whose plan it was? It was God's plan. Good job. You're in church. You know the right answer. It was God's plan. Joseph didn't manufacture these dreams. God gave him these dreams. The brothers here aren't trying to ruin Joseph's plans for Joseph's life. They're trying to ruin God's plan 
for Joseph's life and how frustrating it must be to try to thwart God's plan. You think they could pull it off. You throw him in a cistern. You sell him off to slavery. You go back to dad and say he was killed by a wild animal. You think they could pull it off. How frustrating is it to try to fight against God's plans and end up being part of the tool to fulfill those plans? Now, I asked the question at the beginning of our time, how do acts of evil relate to God's plans for us? And what we see powerfully shown in this passage is that to God, he sees evil acts not as threats, but as tools. Joseph had to get to Egypt because if he didn't get to Egypt, he never would have met Potiphar. And if he wasn't a servant in Potiphar's household, he never would have got thrown in prison. We're on this next week. If he hadn't got thrown into prison, he never would have met one of Pharaoh's officials. And if Pharaoh's official had never met him, Joseph wouldn't be called upon at the time when Pharaoh had a dream that needed to be interpreted. And if Joseph hadn't been there to interpret it, he never would have been exalted to the second highest place in Egypt. God had a plan, and that plan involved getting Joseph to Egypt. And God saw the hatred and evil of Joseph's brothers, not as a threat, but as a tool. And God used that tool. How frustrating it must be to try to thwart the plans of the God of the universe and see him use your threats as a tool. And just even as we think about this, it is fair for us to say, all right, the question still remains, couldn't God have got him to Egypt some other way? I mean, did it have to be through a violent act? Did it have to be through an act of evil? And the answer is no, it it didn't have to be that way. God has lots of tools at his disposal. Why would God keep this tool as one of his tools? Why would he ever use an act of evil? Why wouldn't he just eliminate all evil? And there's at least two answers to this question. The first answer is this, and this is sobering. In order for God to eliminate all acts of evil, you know who God would have to eliminate? Every single one of us. Once again, you may not have killed You may not have done something that's going to make the news as a horrific act of evil. It's a a difference in degree. This is one of the humbling realities of the fact that we need a savior. We need a savior not because we have some quirks and we've made some mistakes. We need a savior because we've committed acts of evil. And if God really wanted evil out of the world, he would take all of us out of the world. God is patient. That's the reason why there still are acts of evil. And there's at least one other reason. And the second reason is that God uses acts of evil to help shape our character, to turn us into the people that he intends for us to be. This is not just to get Joseph to Egypt. This is also to shape Joseph into being the kind of man that he needs to be when his time comes. Um, A a bunch of years ago, about 15 years ago, um, Karina and I experienced a, a deep hurt. Um, I was a youth pastor right out, of, uh, right out of college, and we were first married, and we were at this church, and then our time at the church ended with a lot of pain. Um, the, the, the short story is just we, we ended up feeling really wronged and misunderstood and, and mistreated by the leadership of the church that led to us no longer being there, and it was, just, it was very, very hurtful. And, and the, there is still a part of me, even when I'm telling this story, to hesitate to say, I don't want to call it an act of evil. Um, nobody was trying to get us. Nobody was trying to commit evil against us. 
but in a misguided or group of of selfish and and self-focused actions, we were hurt deeply. And uh, I'm, if, if you know me well, you know that one of the things that's maybe not so good about me is I think I can persuade anybody of what I think they need to be persuaded of. So you can think about how much more I felt this way as a young man in my 20s. I was just like, give me five minutes with these guys and I'll show them that they need to apologize because they mistreated us, they misunderstood the situation, they shouldn't have done this. And I spent meeting after meeting with individuals of them and came away every time with no apology, just nothing, just blank. I kept having the conversations, was getting nothing. And so I decided once it was time to stop having the conversations that I was gonna keep having the conversations. They just weren't going to be there when I was having the conversations. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was having the conversations in my own head. And you know what I found? When I had the conversations in my own head, every time I convinced them. Every time I got my apology, they were like, oh my gosh, what have we done? You're right. There was vindication, there was apology, there was relief for me. Every time. I'm, I'm not proud to admit this. There were times during this season where I would literally spend hours fantasizing about these conversations. Bitterness was eating me up. And I saw a solution to the bitterness. There was one solution to the bitterness, and that solution was an apology. I'll let go of this bitterness. I'm not asking for much. I don't need them to grovel. I don't need my job back. I don't need any of that. All I need is an apology and I will move on and let go of this bitterness. And Karina and I met with an important pastor in our lives. We were asking counsel and and really honestly going in, I was kind kind of wanting to ask advice for like, what should I say the next time I talk to them? And, uh, and with a lot of wisdom, he just said, you're never going to get the apology. It's never going to happen. You need to move on. You need to move on from being obsessed with that and start dealing with what's going on in your heart. Um, and, and if you've gone through this, you know, God shaping you and removing an area of sin like bitterness, it is not a pleasant process. It was a real wrestling match. Um, And it was something that was really important for God to bring me through, to look to break me of my obsession with vindication so that I could let go of that bitterness. Now, fast forward about five years later, um, we we were out of contact with everybody from that experience. We we, we hadn't kept in contact with any of the leadership. We were living in Oregon now instead of California. Um, And one day out of nowhere, I get a phone call. And it's a phone call from one of the elders from this church. He had found my information online, tracked me down and called me. um, And he said, I felt like God was telling me I needed to call you to apologize. We we treated you wrong. Clearly, we weren't trying to do something evil, but but, but we treated you wrong. And I really want to ask you to forgive me. Um, And I did. We had a really nice little conversation. But it was the strangest thing. Here's what was strange about this conversation. If you had told me that this was going to happen five years before this, I would have imagined a euphoric relief, just this burden being lifted. And the strange thing with this conversation is I really didn't feel much at all. I was glad that we were talking. I was was very happy to bring him relief because he was feeling convicted by the Lord. I felt really not much at all. And it was so strange afterwards. I was thinking, why do I not feel this this deep relief? Why do I not feel this great vindication? And I suddenly realized it's because God did some major work in my life. 
and he gave me the apology when I no longer needed it. No longer needed it because God had spent years looking to root out bitterness in my heart. Not that it's gone to this day, but he did some major work on that. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine that I ever would have got to the point of dealing with my tendency towards bitterness and towards holding grudges if God had not brought me through an act of evil, through a wrong that I suffered, and then denied me an apology on it for five years so that I could change, so that I could grow of that. There are no accidents in this thing. Acts of evil are not threats to God's plans. Acts of evil are tools in his hands. They're things that he uses to shape us into being the men and women that he's called us to be. And even if you're in the heat of something right now and you're thinking, I've been wronged and I'm, I'm suffering from it, I'm hurt, I'm abandoned, I'm frustrated, I'm upset, don't allow that to convince you that your life has been hijacked from God's plan. It's a frustrating position to be in to try to thwart God's plan because it never works. God uses acts of evil as tools. And so let, let me just bring it back to this question and say, all right, if, if this is really true, how do we respond? Because if you've suffered an act of evil, it won't be the last one. If right now nothing's coming to mind, that this will happen. This is the world that we live in. You will suffer from acts of evil. So how do we respond to this? And a lot of times what we want is we're like, all right, what is the four-step formula? What are the four things that I do? What's the four-step formula to a better marriage or to better finances or to dealing with evil? And we don't get that from this chapter. What we get instead is a divine perspective, which is really much more frequently what we get from the Bible. We don't get quick fixes. We get a divine perspective. And the divine perspective tells us at least three things. The first thing that it tells us is that you get past acts of evil. You deal with acts of evil by acknowledging that they're evil. There is no sense in this story in which the evil of the brother's action is downplayed. It was evil. You're going to see later on, as we continue through the story of Genesis, Joseph later on calls it evil. It was an evil thing for them to do. Don't think that the way that you're going to get past your bitterness or past your suffering is to explain away the wrongs that you've suffered. You can call evil evil. When it's, when it's us who does it and when it's other people who do it. That's number one. Number two is this. We get to embrace the sovereignty of God. We get to recognize that nobody has the power to thwart God's plans for us. God promises this to all believers, that he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But how's that going to happen after I've lost this job? But how's that going to happen after this person slandered me? How's that going to happen after my marriage ended? How is that going to happen after my parent abandoned me? How am I possibly going to experience this? Just take in. God is not thwarted by any human being. And whatever the person who wronged you did, they are not strong enough to break you free of God's plan for your life. Embrace God's sovereignty. And when you embrace God's sovereignty, you know what you get to do? Instead of having your eyes open to all of your regret and bitterness, you get to have your eyes open and begin to look around for the ways that God is bringing good purposes in this. And the, the fact is that all of us have to embrace is that we're not always going to see this. Certainly not right away and maybe not even during our life here on earth. It's possible that part of the good thing that God is doing 
is he's doing something good in somebody else who's going to see what you went through. It's possible that there's character shaping that's going on that you would never trace directly to that event, but is traced to that event even if you don't know it. We do live on this side, not knowing exactly how all things work. And even the story ends not with Joseph getting vindication, but with Joseph being a slave in Egypt. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. But if you trust in the sovereign God, you begin to look around and say, I know there's a reason. I know there's a purpose. I'm going to start looking around for it. I'm going to trust God. And instead of looking at this as the ruin of my life, I'm going to start looking around for what God is doing and how he's at work through an evil thing that happened. And if you're doubting, if you're thinking, this sounds a little too good to be true, this sounds a little pie in the sky, I'm not sure I can buy this, think about this. Think about the greatest evil that was ever committed on this earth. And the greatest evil that was ever committed on this earth was when human beings nailed the Son of God to a cross. It was the most horrific evil. It was an utter rejection on God. The ingratitude, the lack of faith, the anger, the bitterness, the lies, everything that went into it. It was the greatest act of human evil in the history of the world. And you know what God did through that? God made us his children. God forgave our sins. God reconciled us to himself. God showed his glory to the world. The greatest act of human evil has led to the greatest good that the world has ever known. So maybe your situation is not beyond God's reach. Maybe as terrible and as grief worthy as it is, it's not beyond the grief, it's not beyond the reach of the God who takes acts of evil and uses them as tools to bring his greater good. Before I say a prayer for us, let let me just add one more thing. For some of you, this is going to be deeply personal. For some of you, this is going to be, all right, I need to remember this perspective for later. For some of you, this is where you're at right now. And so before I pray, I just want to say, if you need prayer right now, if you need a conversation right now, There's going to be, as soon as I'm done praying, there's going to be some folks who are up here. There's going to be others, ones of us outside. This is a big deal to deal with the evil that's done against you. God is at work in this. And if you need to gather with brothers and sisters and get prayer, don't be too proud to take what you need. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we can have the confidence that nobody can thwart what you're doing. No threat exists truly to how you're working our lives. Father, I pray that you give us perspective. I pray for those right now who this, who this message is just deeply personal for, who have suffered an evil, are in grief, are angry, are distressed over what's gone on. Father, I pray that you lead them by the hand through this time. I pray that you gather brothers and sisters around them who will walk with them. And Father, I pray that they would walk with open eyes looking around to see the good ways that you're at work in this situation because no one thwarts your good plans for your people. We pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.